Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Hi, thank you for joining the Managed Care podcast produced by the American Journal of Managed Care. I am your host, Mandy Bishop. I am the CEO, co-founder, and chief evangelist of Aloha Health, and I am joined today by the fabulous Nicole Fisher, who is the founder and CEO of HHR Strategies, which is a health and human rights political advisory consultancy. She is the executive director of the Global Brain Health Coalition. She's a regular contributor to Forbes. She has spoken at the United Nations, and she holds events every Super Bowl with the NFL. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Excellent, excellent. I want to talk a little bit. I, I like to understand how did you get started, right? How did this become your path and, and what led you to this place? Um, my path is not a traditional one. And I'm younger than some of my peers at, in, <laughs> as a health policy advisor. And yet the, the path has been so winding. I, I sometimes feel much older. Uh, so I did um, undergrad as biology and psychology, and I thought I was going to be the greatest neurosurgeon of all time. And then I realized I was average when it came to things <laughs> that would be critical to being a very good surgeon. And I had a fear that I was going to end up, um, now mind you, this was in the height of you know pharma reps and all of this and HMOs. And so I reached a point where I was really scared that I was going to end up being in the average of a medical, you know, middle of a middle, medical school class, I was going to end up, you know, writing prescriptions all day, and that was going to be my contribution. And so, uh, as I was you know, preparing to possibly go to medical school, my senior year of college, I decided I wanted to have broad impact, and I wanted to be able to travel and really help people. Or as I used to say, I want to save the world. <laughs> uh, and so I did a strange thing, and I decided last minute to get a master's in public policy. So I went to Chicago and uh, there's nothing like working on a graduate degree in health policy when a senator from your state is preparing to run for president and the future first lady is running the minority center that you work out of. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, it was an amazing experience to just watch. I was a sponge. And I took all the things I loved about healthcare and global health and cool technology and I got to watch you know, an election play out literally in my classroom, at my job. And I knew that health policy and public health were things that I somehow had to merge. And so I decided to get a doctorate. And I've been working on my doctorate in public health at the University of North Carolina, which I love because what they do there that's so, I think, unique is they actually put the school um, or the Department of Health Policy inside the School of Public Health. And so at all times when you're talking about changing policy or strategy, it's housed by thinking about people and human beings. Uh, Whereas a lot of places, the policymakers are very separate from the people who think about other humans. The ivory tower mentality that Mm -hmm. we we see so much with policy wonks, right? Exactly. That's that's really amazing. And I, I didn't realize that you worked so closely with the Obama administration before it was the Obama administration, right? And that, that that had to have been very kind of fundamental in shaping not just your ideas on how policy could be implemented, but on 
the potential broad reach of policy decisions and, and how very large it was the opportunity space in front of you to, to impact healthcare for so many millions of Americans? It was more than I ever, even at the time had, you know, I couldn't have predicted how much, and that's why I said I was a sponge. Right. Things just happen around you 24 seven and you don't, understand the full potential and impact at the time. I just knew that there was a lot going on. All these people who I interacted with every day could potentially do big things. And then as you watch them play out, it's amazing to, you know, just sort of say, wow, these were mentors and, or, you know, in some cases people around um, the, we'll just say around the state and the university I wasn't a big fan of, and I saw how some things got done, not from the insider perspective per se, but a little bit of an outsider. And there were things I really didn't like, or I went, oh dear God, this is actually how things happen. What (laughs) to say about the state of America? You saw how the sausage was made. Yes, literally. Yeah. (laughs) But you got to participate in the actual legislative process, right? So over the ensuing years, you've actually crafted legislation and, and you've been a signatory on amicus briefs. Tell me a little bit about not just that sausage making process, but how it feels to know that your name is stamped now on actual laws of our land. I find it scary, actually. I stand by, of course, everything that my name goes on, but um, perhaps, you know, I shouldn't say this, but the truth is being a, a young woman, Uh, moving to DC and doing all these things around the time that the Affordable Care Act was passing and having opinions about, you know, the good and the bad of the ACA, what those unintended consequences could be down the road, what was constitutional and what wasn't. It was really risky. And I luckily had very, very good, thoughtful mentors. But I also had a place of safety where because I was sort of a new kid, um, I got to be a part of things. But again, I got to learn and they were the front and center people having to go on air and defend the ideas. They were the ones having to meet with the attorneys to discuss um, what was happening or negotiate. And it was a very fascinating process, especially around the Affordable Care Act, that again, you know, the good and the bad, you got to see a lot of good and a lot of bad that came out of of that process in in 2009 and 2010. And it, for me, is just like publishing. Uh, Even now when I write something for Forbes, even though it's 100% accurate and I've looked through the data myself, the moment I hit publish, I have this mini panic attack of sorts of like, oh dear God, I can't take it back now. Right. <laughs> it's out there. And that's the same, you know, behind closed door discussions of what we should do to help people versus what gets put in print. And then you see the political process impact policy and you see what started out as a discussion of this is what we can do to help the most people become, well, if we give this person this, we get this in return. And so this has to move this way and that way. And you see the final thing come out and you see your name associated with it. And sometimes you think, okay, we got something done and that's all that matters. And you're very proud. And other times you're like, oh dear God, that is not what I said. That's not what I wanted. Right. And the sausage really does happen. And on the back end, you just kind of wait and see like, who's going to drag me through the mud? Who's going to call me an idiot? Who's going to praise me? You never know. And sometimes you find 
uh, friends and foes in unexpected places based on things that you've, you've taken up. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's really true. And, and it's, it's been the last year for me has been very eye-opening in understanding how few people seem to have a very rich comprehension of the complexity of our legislative process and that how many people understand that one individual is not able to affect legislation, sweeping legislation, that one individual person is not going to create or repeal a, a law, right? That, that there's mm -hmm. this ginormous process involving not just hundreds, but thousands of people and, and hundreds of special interests and that the things that are proposed are not necessarily the things that are enacted and the permutations that it goes through in that legislative process are, are numerous and, and frequently I, I think the end product looks nothing like what started, right? It looks nothing like mm -hmm. the, the initial materials. So the, the sausage, the, the sausage completely changes forms over the course of the legislative process. That's true. And on the upside, I would say, as much as we get frustrated with Congress and uh, in particular with how slow change can be, you know, thinking about the upcoming administration, it could be a good thing. You know, whether you think the ACA should be repealed uh, on day one or you think it should stay, you know, whatever your, your opinions are, what you just said is so important. And I think a lot of people who are in panic mode have overlooked that, where they've sort of forgotten it, um, that, you know, one human being cannot undo everything, right? right? On day one, tax code can't be changed alongside, you know, there's so many pieces of the puzzle. Um, I know uh, one of the former secretaries had said the ACA at this point is woven in the fabric of America. And I think that was a nice um, little analogy in the sense that there's so many, you know, again, whether you agree or disagree with the ACA, it has woven itself in so many different pieces of legislation. Right. Uh, and it's in so many agencies and across so many groups that it's not that one person can make one decision and we just, you know, remove it from everything. Um, so it, the future is very unknown, uh, which is frightening at the same time. I think some of people's fears should be alleviated by the point you just made. Right. That it, it is a very complex process and it will take time. And, and I, I think that really important that, uh, you know, that the ACA has woven into the fabric of America. I think that that is one of the takeaways that I'll continue to kind of ruminate on. I, I think understanding all of the implications and the ripple effect of, of the ACA and, and how it has been woven into not just the the health insurance exchanges, right? Not just the individual policy, not, not just individual mandate, not just the tax code, but it has shaped employer health plans. It has shaped healthcare as an industry. It has shaped the way that hospitals function. It has shaped the technology that we use in order to facilitate healthcare delivery. So the, the, I think that the implications of change are going to be carefully considered. And I think that, um, and I, I hope that the incoming administration is going to be very carefully looking at that ripple effect and looking at understanding the impacts to the changes that have been proposed, which are, which are broad sweeping, right? And, and you're no stranger mm -hmm. to this, having come up, through, you know, come up through policy when the ACA was being proposed and having been, you know, been part of that legislative process, you've also gotten really involved in something that I find fascinating. I think a lot of our listeners would find really interesting is <laughs> crafting the concussion legislation for youth sports, you know, being involved in looking at 
enacting policy to things that the average everyday American, like let's, let's think about football, youth sports, football in Texas, right? And you right. crafted legislation <laughs> to help protect peewee football. Like let's, let's protect those kids. And I want to talk about that because I think that is amazing okay. <laughs> beyond going up against, you know, beyond the, the ACA, right? So beyond <clears throat> this very broad sweeping, this affects everyone. You know, the heart of America, we love, we love our sports and we really, really love our football and our football starts very young. And so tell me about how that became a passion project of yours and how that evolved into that, you know, being able to, to drive the legislative process and then working with the NFL on these events that you're holding at the Super Bowl now on an annual basis to talk about the neuroscience behind concussions and to raise awareness. Okay. Well, that's a lot. That's a big, um, it's, a, it's a big topic. <laughs> the... You know, the youth sport piece is, and I'm sorry, I'm laughing. It, there's nothing easy about that. And what one would think, pun intended, right? It'd be a no-brainer. We want to protect kids. We want to protect sports, right? Super simple. One would think you'd have cheerleaders on every front for this. I once had to do, I've been at the UN speaking about brain health. And um, because the United Nations uh, you know, views it as a public health issue, and so I thought uh, there was once this policy panel and I thought I could get a governor, a Republican and a Democrat to sit down and you know, join everybody. I couldn't get a single person. And what I found fascinating was that they gave me the same answer. And that almost never happens in policy. So um, I had approached a Southern Republican and a Northern Democrat and both are huge proponents of you know, protecting kids and protecting sports in America. Right. And they ended up the way this thing is so convoluted and talk about, you know, thinking five, 10 steps down the, the road, both of them uh, would not come publicly and speak on where they stood with concussion um, legislation, their beliefs, or what we should do uh, in school systems around legislation. And the reason at the end of the day, for both of them, was the first lady's food initiative. And, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, I'm serious. And and the way this played out was basically the person on the right said, you know, if I mandate the kinds of equipment kids have to wear or how many hours a day they're allowed to practice, or what sports they can and cannot play, I, you know, can't then defend that we don't tell parents what their children have to eat. And we can't, you know, and so it's just all this regulation that would come in the pipeline people should be able to choose was their decision, you know, what they want to do as long as we let them know the risks. And on the left, the argument was something remarkably similar, which is, you know, when we've got budgets that look like this and we can't do this or that, if I start allocating money to things like equipment or different kinds of coaches on the field or different kinds of specialists to be present at all times, these are expensive, you know, human beings to be on the sidelines we're not going to be able to afford books. We already can't afford books. We're not able to afford, you know, healthy food. And so at the end of the day, um, you know, they said, if we can't afford the first lady's food initiative, we certainly can't afford sports equipment. Wow. And so no one, I got no one to show up. And I was so talking to yourself about brain health. No, luckily, you know, I got plenty of people um, to to sit in who were very thoughtful and knowledgeable. But I, I was so embarrassed. Like, oh, I could totally get all the, you know, no one, no one wanted to talk on it. And that was when I went, uh oh, like this is really a problem. So, um, 
at the end of the day, though, people really want to protect kids that, you know, we, we love our sports, but we love children and they should be safe in doing things. And, you know, I think a lot of us are starting to really feel, and, and I'm biased because I told you my background's neuro, right. but we really believe that neuroscience is the future. We're starting to map the brain like we do highway systems. We're starting to see things that we thought led to one event or another don't. They come from other places. They're influenced by other things. You know, our brain controls how we move, how we feel, the emotions we have, our reactions. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, we don't let children, and I'll say children, but people drive until a certain age because we say their frontal lobe isn't developed enough. We don't let them vote right. until a certain age because we say their frontal lobe isn't developed enough to make good decisions. We don't let them, you know, go to war. We don't let them drink alcohol. And yet, will let teeny tiny people run their heads into each other at two a days in 105 degree heat. Right. And we don't think twice about it. And so you know, anyone who knows me knows I'm very pro sport, but there are certain things we do that just don't make any sense. I mean, we have pitch counts for little boys who play baseball um, so that we protect their shoulders as young as 10 years old. Yeah. We institute, you know, how many times you can throw a ball a certain way. And yet we don't limit how many times they can run their head into <laughs> a wall. Each other, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's an area that's ripe for change. The big problem we're finding is that it's going to come from coaches, honestly, because uh, we even have a lot of NFL um, coaches. A couple of were you know, speaking to Congress last year saying, you know, footage they had showed guys 10 years ago, they wouldn't show today now that they realize the impact of what happens. Um, but they even said, you know, by the time these guys get to us, they're set in their ways. They've been right. trained, of course, right? You know, they didn't introduce the sport. And so you're starting to see, especially in the Ivy Leagues, I think a lot of people have heard um, places like Stanford and Harvard, you know, they are doing no tackle for practice. Um, they're seeing that, you know, it's about the practice. It's about knowing the plays. It's about you know, implementing things over and over. Um, you don't necessarily have to, to run your head into someone else. Um, you know, we're looking at different strategies for how to tackle that are safer. Um, a lot of people have called for no helmets, which won't happen. But, you know, the argument they make is in rugby, people look up. They don't run their heads into each other. And that by putting protective equipment over you, you you know, feel invincible and change your behavior. So there's a lot of different ways for this to go. And I think um, this is the tip of the iceberg. We're going to see so much happening. And we had three congressional hearings last session. They ranged um, from youth sport to college sports to professional sports. And there were some very uncomfortable moments, especially when those older adults and coaches um, and the NFL in particular had to address the uh, ways they've handled things, the data they've hid. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a very um, difficult situation to deal with. Well, it's a really interesting example, though, of, of getting policy moving through really unexpected avenues, right? So there's, mm -hmm. there's a tremendous amount of public pressure that mm -hmm. contributed to the ability to have those congressional hearings and to kind of expose these, you know, expose the data and to make the public aware that this is a problem and it starts, it starts with youth sports and then it continues on through, through mm -hmm. college and through the NFL. 
you know, I, I think that's a really great concrete example of opportunities for us to influence policy through making the public aware of policy impacts. Yes, I would say that this mirrors very much, uh, and again, to use another bad you know, pun, the playbook of the NFL has been the same as big tobacco. And, and when I say that, I mean everything from the kinds of data that were not, I won't say hid, uh, I won't make accusations, but the kinds of data that were kept from the public, right. the law firms, the consulting firms, the everything, if you look back, the 30 plus years of big tobacco and the 30 plus years that this has been an NFL uh, issue, it's, I mean, almost one-to-one how they've gone about not dealing with um, what was inevitable. But in both cases, it's ultimately the public and people in healthcare saying this, you know, the implications aren't just one thing. At the end of the day, you know, I've referenced that brain health is, is public health. And so it's not about sports in and of itself. It's about you know, what we value in terms of public health. I mean, the, the numbers we see of brain damage from domestic violence, the number of women who check into shelters, I mean, they don't go because someone says something mean, right? They're fearing right. for their lives. And in most cases, there's brain damage uh, of, of some kind, usually from asphyxiation. Um, you know, I think car accidents, the Department of Transit in the near future is going to have to deal with airbags. The way they come out and hit you at an odd angle, your brain just rattles around in your skull. No different than getting hit by a lineman. So in the near future, I can envision that airbags will not be the standard uh, of protection in cars. And then you look to other places, you know, going back to the United Nations, India, China, Brazil, and, you know, to think of the teeny tiny, the tatas and the motorbikes, the number of car accidents and, and head injuries per year. I mean, it starts to amount to billions and billions of dollars. Right. Absolutely, which I guess is, is how, from the United Nations standpoint, looking at this as a public health problem, I, it's, it's very interesting to me listening to you talk and thinking about how these things play out on a global scale and looking at things like our environmental policy and thinking, all of these mm-hmm. things that, to me, uh, I believe correlate and, and would resonate mm-hmm. with the United Nations. I would probably be very much in agreement with their areas of focus, but looking at kind of a more micro level within the United States, the, the factions that agree or disagree with the science that is being, you know, that is being put forth around specific healthcare initiatives, you know, things like, you know, things like gun violence, for example, um, or mm-hmm. being able to focus on environmental health considerations versus, you know, focusing very specifically on how to more effectively heal a broken arm. I know that one of the provisions of the recently passed Cures Act is to improve scientific expertise and outreach at the FDA, right? That's, that's a new, that is a very small line item within the mandate. And I'm wondering how kind of the broad, the, the Cures Act might broadly bring us a little bit closer to alignment on these global health initiatives, but then also being able to improve that scientific core of FDA, mm-hmm. move away from the political and more towards the scientific do you think that there's going to be an, an impact? Do you think that it's likely we are going to see some really positive material change coming from the, the Cures Act enactment? I hope so. Um, like when we first began the discussion and I said, you know, throughout these processes, you learn the good and the bad. So I think most all probably legislation when it comes out, um, you know, when something becomes a 
enacted, there's good and there's bad in there. And so with the Cures Act, we, we're all excited. There's certainly right. that. Uh, as you said, you know, one of the things that's going to be improved, hopefully, is communications, which I think is so important. People can't be um, really, in my opinion, active participants in their care until they understand. And we have to be better at communicating research and science to them. Um, I think that by pushing, you know, by promoting sharing, interoperability, those things that are built into the Cures Act, you know, that automatically leads to accountability, um, data quality that improves standardization. I can see a lot of that. At the same time, I am, uh, I've come to a point where when there's not mandated funds, I become skeptical of how much can actually be done. Right. Um, All these things are great in theory, but when the money isn't appropriated up front, it means that each year Congress can not approve or they can move things around. And, and so I think a lot of good can come from the Cures Act, uh, but I think it will come in some of those broader things that we just touched on, like right. you know interoperability and communications. And at the end of the day, the one could argue, what exactly do those mean and how do you measure them? How are we going to show some sort of success or failure or small incremental improvement when we don't really know how to measure these things from the beginning? Absolutely. I I think that that's a a really key point. And I hope, I I believe that the advances that could come from interoperability and, and the kind of the more specific provisions of the Cures Act that are in alignment with legislation that's already been in motion for a long time, right? So circling back again to the ACA and the way that it has woven itself into the fabric of healthcare in America, that it advances a lot of the you know, technological enablement, a lot of the processes that, that we've been trying to move forward and continuing to kick the ball down the field, you know, trying into the NFL as well, trying to <laughs> continue all of the work that has begun and all of the work that's been set in, in motion um, you know, trying to improve healthcare access, trying to improve the, the, you know, the effectiveness and utilization and adoption of digital tools, trying to improve, you know, the research and science around, um, the, you know, the cancer moonshot, like trying to improve those, you know, those very specific um, initiatives that, that have arisen and that have been, have been very popular, I, I believe, that the ACA will, that, removing the Obamacare, um, removing the, the affordable health insurance component from the ACA. I think that broadly the adoption of digital tools to help enable information sharing, to give patients access to their data, like those things are, are popular provisions that, you know, that, that I believe the Cures Act is going to further and, and continue. Mm-hmm. How do you think that the incoming administration, if we had to, if we had to project, if we had to predict Within the next, you know, four years, what types mm. of changes do you anticipate that we should prepare for? I hate that question. You hate that question? We can, we can drop that question if you want to. No, yeah. it, it's because where to begin um, right. is the hardest part. So, you know, like any prediction or forecast, it's based on what we've seen in the past. 
And we've already touched upon, despite claims that certain things would be done on day one, we know there's an actual process and constitutionally you have to follow that process. And so it's going to take a little longer. You also have to remember that this transition is going to take longer than I would say most uh, presidential transitions, the transition teams will be working together longer and closer than we've seen in recent past. Um, I think we can definitely count on overhaul, uh, both of Medicare and Medicaid, and what overhaul means, you know, we don't exactly know. The reason I say both, we've heard a lot about Medicare, Paul Ryan has talked about it, and actually, you know, the new head of HHS, Tom Price, talked about it. Uh, he went on record a couple of days, uh, I think four days before he was named um, you know, the head of HHS, and he mentioned Medicare reform. Now, since his appointment, he has not talked about it. But I think he was actually a safe choice for the incoming administration. I mean, he's a doctor. He's right. also chaired several congressional committees. So this isn't his first day in any of this territory. He knows the game of lobbyists. He knows who the stakeholders are. He knows where costs come from. And so whether you love or hate the Republican Party, I actually think that for this incoming administration, uh, Congressman Price was a very safe choice for them and a knowledgeable choice. Um, the reason I would say that there will then be Medicaid reform of some kind is Seema Verma for CMS. Right. Now, she has a master's in public health uh, from Hopkins. This is a person who actually has a track record of community-based care, um, a very public health-oriented way of thinking about the world. She also understands payment structure, state-level reform, and so they sort of counter each other. Uh, if you think about the MD who you know, has been part of Cong Congress, and then you've got this public health official. So I think um, they will actually balance each other quite well and set up a lot of room for reform uh, by two people who think about the world and healthcare very differently. Now, you mentioned earlier that you know, what someone claims while they're running versus uh, what they do when they're in actual office, do. right? <laughs> or able to, actually, yes, yes. <laughs> want to, can do. I don't know. We'll we'll leave it at that, right? Um, but you know, Trump made it very clear that he did not support cuts to Medicare or um, Social Security. Now, it seems that's no longer the case, but we we don't know. Um, that is what he said. Um, but he does have the Republican support, uh, especially if Paul Ryan is, is taking the lead to make some of those changes and make them somewhat quickly. Uh, we do know that people are unhappy, right? Um, right. At, the truth is that every year premiums are going up. Things have to change. Uh, we see states like Pennsylvania where you know, prices are going through the roof because you've also got people exiting or entities, insurers exiting the exchanges. And so there have to be change. Even if you know Hillary had become president, there was going to be change. So I don't think at the end of the day, people should be as scared. Um, I think change will be slow. Uh, I think it will happen. And I think some of it was inevitable, no matter who was in charge. 
Um, my fears include things such as block grants. Right. Um, and, and I know you and I have actually talked a little bit about that in the past. You know, block grants are something that, like a lot of things in healthcare, uh, when it comes to research and, and money, have become weaponized in ways that they weren't previously. Um, block grants, one could argue that the intent was to give lumps of money to states or organizations or counties or what have you to do something different, experimental, and to take an idea and see what would happen if. And right. in the best cases, you could set up a rural women's you know, breast cancer center. Women who didn't normally have access to such kinds of care all of a sudden do with a block of money. Let's see if there are really you know, improvements to their outcomes or diagnostics um, too to augment the healthcare funding that already exists. Exactly. Replace all healthcare funding. Exactly. And that, and that of course is exactly where I'm, I'm headed. Right. So, you know, now we're using them in ways that are like weapons of here's this and they're really easy to undo. They're really easy to take away because it's a chunk of money. So it's a, something that's you know, appropriated in all these different ways. And we talked earlier about sort of that, you know, like woven fabric idea a block of money to one entity can easily be taken out. And so um, those could be very dangerous. And uh, I, I do fear those. Um, one of the things I'm most excited about though is President Obama has been a huge advocate of entrepreneurship and creativity and innovation and disruption and all the keywords you know, that we, we love to use. Um, but I think the next administration will, in many ways, do the same. Uh, when you think about, and this is where I said, you, know, you predict the future by looking at the past, you know, we have a person who's business-oriented. Um, their family is very entrepreneurial. Their in-laws that have married in are very entrepreneurial. And so um, I think these pushes for... Uh, support of innovation will continue. And a lot of people who are in health and tech and even policy here in DC, we're solution oriented. And so we see problems and we try and fix them. And so I, I have some hope that we'll continue to see a lot of support for ideas that move us towards a value-based system because you know, we're, we're headed that way for better or worse and clearly for the better. Um, and we all agree on that, no matter what side of the aisle you, you fall on. So I think some of the reforms that are coming will be necessary. I think incentivization to focus on value will continue. Um, now, what will be interesting is to see a lot of reimbursements and promotion of long-term and like portable insurance um, and how we provide assistance for poor individuals. Uh, absolutely. And I, I think that I think it would be really interesting to have this conversation again in about six months after the new administration has had an opportunity to come in and take stock and look at, you know, kind of an impact assessment of the policy proposals that it has in, in front of it. I think this would be a really interesting conversation for us to have maybe every six months for the next four years and see what, right, see what has happened, what has changed. You know, what are, what are the opportunity spaces like and, and what are, you know, what are potential impacts and then how can the healthcare community respond? And I, I think one of the key, the key messages of, of this conversation and, and, you know, and of your 
you know, your impact that you have had uh, that, that has been substantial and, and much of it behind the scenes initially in drafting legislation, but then also in, in front of the cameras, you know, and, and being very visible in pushing for um, an appropriate amount of attention paid to a public health problem around concussions and, you know, bringing these issues to the forefront and then not being afraid to be a face for something that has a lot of opposition, right? Like, I think that you are one of our healthcare heroes and, and that's fantastic. <laughs> I think you know, in in that notion of bringing policy, you know, of affecting policy through the public awareness, like making sure that the public is aware and that they care. Like the, the public has reasons to care. They care about peewee sports. They mm -hmm. care about their Sunday night football, their Monday night football, their Thursday night football. Like the public as a whole cares about these issues. And so they are able to get informed and rally behind it. So I think for us moving forward, one of the key things that we can do is to continue pushing for um, better and more, uh, more frequent information that's available mm -hmm. and accessible to the general American public outside of this echo chamber where we talk to ourselves, right? The policy people, we talk to ourselves, our healthcare industry insiders, we talk to ourselves, but mm -hmm. finding ways to create public facing messaging that resonates with the peewee football, you know, the, with the peewee football people in, in Texas with, you know, like finding mm -hmm. ways to create that messaging. I think it's going to be critically important for us moving forward in this new administration as change does occur and as change is being evaluated, that people have an opportunity to understand implications and to get behind it or, or to rally against, right, to understand mm -hmm. what, what is happening and why. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think there's a lot of potential. With any change, there's going to be some growing pains. Of course. But, but I think there is a lot of potential. Um, and we sit in a very good seat, right? Healthcare and technology are going to be ever-present. Uh, they impact everyone. They impact everything from long-term, you know, thinking about the world and our families to day-to-day, -day, how we get things done, where we go, where we live, where we work. Um, and so our ability to have influence in the health space, it can look like housing security. It can look like nutrition. It can look like transit or sports. It can be so many different things that, that are, are really, our, our influence potential is just unlimited. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been Mandy Bishop, the host of the Managed Care podcast for the American Journal of Managed Care. And thank you so much to our guest, Nicole Fisher. Thank you. Thank you all for joining.